0: Hi everyone, Alex here, and today I'm joined by Paul Mendez to discuss his debut novel, Rainbow Mill. Paul Mendez is a London-based novelist, essayist, and screenwriter of Jamaican heritage. As a writer, he's contributed to The Times, Literary Supplement, and the Brixton Review of Books. In 2020, Dialogue Books published Rainbow Milk in the UK, which featured in the Observer's prestigious Top 10 Debut Novels list and was shortlisted for the Gordon Byrne Prize. Mendez is currently studying for an MA in Black British Writing at Goldsmiths, University of London. An essential and revelatory coming of age narrative, Rainbow Milk follows 19 year old Jesse McCarthy as he grapples with his racial and sexual identities against the backdrop of his Jehovah's Witness upbringing. A wholly original novel, as tender as it is visceral, Rainbow Milk is a bold reckoning with race, class, sexuality, freedom, and religion across generations, time, and cultures. Hi, Paul. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Alex. In the galley version of Rainbow Milk that I received earlier this year, there's a letter on the first page from Margot Schenkmanter, the senior editor of Doubleday, introducing us to the book. These opening letters are a pretty common thing for galleys, and once I finished this book, I went back to reread the letter. Uh, I want to highlight a passage where Margot states, "'Months after the last time I read Rainbow Milk, certain scenes are still as real to me as if I lived them myself. I remember the sensory experience rather than reading them on the page.'" And I have to say, I very much agree with Margot. I remember Rainbow Milk and Jesse's story, or at least the parts that you've allowed us access to, in a very physical or visceral way. The question here being, is writing mostly a sensory experience
1: for you? That's a very good question and one I've not heard before. Um, I think it is. Um, I'm I'm very much a person of feel and feelings. I'm very emotionally led. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, life experience as much as uh, as much as writing. Um, Rainbow Milk is based loosely on my own experiences, and while my initial treatment of those experiences was through journal writing, uh, which sort of contributed towards an effective memoir, um, when I met my U- UK publisher Charmaine Lovegrove, she encouraged me to find the fiction in my work. Um, so by a couple of, um, levels of, I guess, uh, drafts of first person really trying to revisit my own emotions, um, I eventually switched to third person, but kept the camera, so to speak, on Jesse's shoulder so as to be very much centered in his responses to everything that was going on around him. And as a young sort of very, very naive, very sheltered ex-Jehovah's Witness who uh, has had to keep a lid on his sexual desires uh, for his whole life, um, when he suddenly does find himself in a position of freedom to be able to sort of explore those feelings for the first time, it is extremely visceral for him. He doesn't have any sort of intellectual kind of apparatus to, um, to explain what he's going through um and it's it 's really all about him just throwing himself into uh these situations that he finds himself in um and, re- and and telling us exactly how he feels, what he 's looking at, what he hears, what he smells, what he tastes, what he touches um and yeah that 's kind of all based on my own sort of um memory bank, both um intellectual and physical. You know, it's about what my body remembers going through at those times. I'm twice the age that Jesse is in the book when we first mm-hmm. meet him. Mm-hmm. So it was quite something to, to realise that I do still physically remember um, all of those uh, kinds of feelings. Um, so, yes, it was uh, an incredibly visceral and, yeah, um, interesting experience writing. Do you think that style
0: of writing um, comes across in, in everything you do, in, in all of your different uh, texts?
1: I think before writing Rainbow Milk fiction, my main uh, preoccupation as a writer was with the personal essay. So everything that I experience in life externally, um, I try to, well, I don't even try to, it just sort of happens naturally that I... Write about it through my own sort of bank of experiences and memories, so whether it's um George Floyd or um yeah yeah, yeah, just remembering um so if I can actually just use George Floyd as an example, um mm-hmm. when I found out about george floyd's death, um murder. It really reminded me of my experience when uh, a young man, a young black man called Stephen Lawrence was murdered um, by white supremacists in London back in 1993, when I was 11 years old. Um, And I really had to sort of compare the two deaths and compare the two situations, compare the two experiences and compare what I was experiencing of George Floyd's murder with Um, how I viewed uh, Stephen Lawrence's murder at the time. Um, And so it always sort of comes back to um, sort of how I felt experiencing something. Um, You know, George Floyd's murder happened when Britain was in lockdown Mm -hmm. during, you know, the first spring lockdown. So it was very difficult for any of us to really sort of be in person and um, and uh, talk to each other about how we were feeling, about what we'd seen as black people. Um, and so when the lockdown started to ease and we did start to meet up, I met up with a bird watching group, a black bird watching group actually in London. And we sort of all looked at each other. It was the first time any of us had really left the house for a couple of months. And we all sort of looked at each other and realized that we'd all been through the same thing. And in critical race theory, um, one of the big tenets is that lived experience is of absolute paramount importance. Mm. Uh, and that's what I sort of stick to. Um, or that's what helps me to justify my use of the personal in my um, essayistic writing, which forms basically the bedrock of all of my writing, whether fiction or not.
0: Thank you for that answer. Um, my co-host, Rudy has brought up on this podcast before the idea that queer literature in general seems to be much better at depicting sex than its counterpart. Uh, and when we're talking sensory experiences, Rainbow milk sex scenes are so honest and bare and real. I think that's what makes them so memorable and genuinely some of the sexiest I've come across in my history of reading. Do you agree with this assessment of queer literature? And how do you approach writing about sex?
1: Thank you, first of all. Uh, very kind words. Um, I I actually agree. Um, and I think that... I mean, in the UK, we have a bad sex award that's given out every year to oh the my worst um, <laughs> passage of uh, sex writing in literary fiction. Um, so it has to be literary fiction. <laughs> you know, it has to be... Um, You know, writers who are otherwise, you know, writers who otherwise have great literary merit in their work who nevertheless write sex dreadfully. Um, And it is almost always, um, I'm afraid, uh, heterosexual, cis, Caucasian men who write terrible sex scenes. And I think part of the reason for that is we live still in a very, obviously, uh, patriarchal society in which um, we are sort of constantly subjected to the white masculine gaze on everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so we know what sex looks like when it comes to straight white men. You know, we know what they're looking for. We know what how women are sort of um, portrayed so often. Um, and because, I mean, if, if, if a straight person wrote a sex scene the way I would, Um, I think that they would probably think, oh, this sounds very pedestrian. So maybe I just have to throw lots of poetry in there and sort of, you know, make it really florid in order to sort of explore something absolutely other than the actual sensory um, responses between the two or more people having sex. Um, Queer sex uh, isn't as commonly portrayed by a long shot. Um, Certainly not the sort of sex scenes that I've written about um, a young black man or featuring a young black man and often older white men. You know, we don't see that on TV or in films very often and we don't read it in fiction. So I found the opportunity to just really show and, you know, coming back to what I was saying earlier about keeping the camera on Jesse's shoulder because it's just as much about his experiencing these things for the first time. As, as, as the reader experiencing it, mm-hmm. um, but just to sort of convey just what is actually happening so that we can see and understand and sort of be in that sort of sensory space. Um, and it was really after, while I was re- uh, writing Milk, I, I reread um, The Swimming Library by Alan Hollinghurst. Um, and I also read Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine mm-hmm. Um two novels in which the sex is very kind of openly described. Um, it isn't sort of um, obscured in any way by the language that the authors use. Um, in fact, it's stripped down so that you can really just be involved in the, you know, the hard-hitting words you know when you use the words of sex like you know i don't know what sort of language i can use on your podcast oh you can go off go do it oh okay like great so you know fuck cum (laughs) dick pussy ass all of this kind of stuff um it really puts you there you know puts you right in there you know i growing up as Jehovah's Witness, used to have almost like a heart attack every time I heard a swear word or (laughs) a word that pertained to sexual activity. It really shocked me. And so I just really wanted to sort of preserve that, um, certainly in terms of describing Jesse's very naive, very sheltered experience. Um, So thank you. I hope that, I'm glad that sort of came off, so to speak, for you. Um, But I, you know, I approached The, you know, writing about sex in the same way that I would approach writing about food, writing about, um, you know, different people's accents, for example, Um, you know, because it's all within the realm of Jesse's very sheltered um, upbringing.
0: Rainbow Milk is so completely rife with reference in the best way. Uh, whether it's art, pop culture in general, or most especially music, you're extremely successful in transporting a reader back to that very weird time to be alive that was the early aughts. How was the experience of accessing and writing about this particular time period?
1: Uh, it was really interesting for me because while um, Jess's experiences closely parallel my own, um, there were sort of key things that I wanted to do to um to Make him different from me. And one of those things was to make him move to London two years before I moved to London. Um, so, music has always been my way of accessing a particular period in time. You know, I was an avid listener to the charts, the UK top 40 on the radio, um, all through my uh, childhood and adolescence. <laughs> So, you know, I could almost pinpoint a particular week in history. You know, I remember exactly where I was when The Boy Is Mine by Brandy and Monica uh, reached number two. It was beaten <laughs> to the number one spot by Celevi by Bewitched. You know, I remember the, how I felt and everything. You know, I could really totally <laughs> paint that whole scene from memory. Um, but because Free Like Me by Sugar Babes was such. Uh, an amazing record and an amazingly different record from anything that was released in the charts at that time, certainly by a sort of mainstream pop act. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw an opportunity to use that song as almost, you know how we find particular songs really inspiring to us, that they really spur us into into a different sort of mode of being. Mm-hmm. Um, other examples for me include, you know, Lemonade by Beyonce, um, When I Get Home by Solange, I'll be talking albums rather than tracks, but, and also The Life of Pablo by Kanye West. You know, those were all really, really important albums for me in terms of um, inspiring me to take certain decisions in my life. And so I really wanted to sort of donate that to Jesse, and I used Free Like Me as his kind of trigger to leave home and move to London and start a new life for himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and music is a great anchor for memory as well so towards the end of the book there's a song by Wham! Freedom um, that was released in 1984 when Jesse and I were both two years old mm. and that again is used as a vehicle to trigger uh, a very 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 important memory um, from Jesse's early life uh, that sort of grants him in a sense of family anew um, so yeah, I kind of picked up on that and, and spread it through the book. I listened to a lot of music while I was writing as well um, and ended up even curating playlists, which is a great thing to be able to do with <laughs> streaming services. I was able to curate playlists that could take me through a narrative mood, um, one that sort of matched the, the shape of, uh, the, of the novel. Um, and, you know, finally on this point... Um, I feel that music is a great way to bring people together, which sounds like a very sort of trite thing to say. But when it comes to something like Unknown Pleasures by Joy Division, mm. um, which Jesse and his uh, housemate listened to on Christmas Day together, yeah, they're 10 years apart in age. They come from different parts of the UK and have very, very different experiences listening to this music but it really draws them together and puts them both in a space where they can fall in love. Um, and that's a beautiful thing. And I think, um, we can all sort of cite examples of that in our own lives where music has been that for us.
0: It's funny also, I just kind of want to point out as a side note that if you go on Spotify too, there are at least a couple of rainbow milk playlists where someone's compiled all the music you referenced throughout the book and they're, they're really good playlists. Um, and just as another note, I actually went onto YouTube to watch the Sugar Babes Freak Like Me episode of Top of the Pops. And you clearly did the research. I think that actual episode air date is May 3rd, 2002. <laughs> and there's a scene in the book where Jesse is talking about it the day after, and it's dated as May
1: 4th, 2002. I did all that research. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I had a great time doing all that research. Honestly, Rainbow Milk, because it's because it's so much about time and place and nostalgia. Mm -hmm. You know, I was in my um, I I turned 20 that month, May 2002. Um, So, you know, it was a great sort of period in terms of being young and sort of having the world in front of you and sort of making decisions that sort of dictate your future. Um, and sort of reconstructing that through pop culture. You know, I bought The Face magazine. You know, I literally you can sort of go on to, uh, you can go online and find uh, issues of magazines from that time. You know, magazines like Vibe, um, The Face, ID, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, those magazines are pop culture time capsules.
0: Mm, they were yeah.
1: about what was absolutely now and, you know, Absolutely happening at that time, so it 's amazing to look back at the fashion <laughs> at who, you know which musicians and artists etc are being interviewed um, you know and certainly at that time, I was reading those magazines as a way of sort of finding out who I was supposed to be as an adult, mm-hmm. you know and they were recommending me books like jt Leroy 's "The Heart is to See it Full of All Things, for mm-hmm. example, that I read when I you know in the summer of two thousand and two, which really sort of inspired me, really sort of blew my mind. So it's amazing to be able to reconstruct that. Um, It's just as sort of crucial, and perhaps more so, I think, to a sort of um, biographical kind of account as actually what the person was doing. It's what surrounds them is so important because that's what sort of, I suppose, dictates their next moves.
0: What was your favourite
1: part about uh, growing up in this era? I think it was a really, really great time um I think I mean you know what nine eleven happening um during that period sort of really sort of dragged us kicking and screaming into the twenty first century um it was you know uh something that affected us all obviously uh incredibly strongly um mm-hmm. I think I had a sort of i had my own sort of response to what was going on because um by that time I'd been disfellowshipped from the organization of Jehovah's Witnesses. And I thought Armageddon was happening. And I thought, Oh, <laughs> that's it. Like I'm going to die. You know, I've lost my opportunity to sort of repent and go back to God. Um, and because and I, I suppose that freed me in a way to, to, to live the life that I would go on to live over the next couple of years. Uh, but the early 2000s in, in the UK, it's the only time in my life that we had a Labour government, so a sort of more left-wing government. And everything just felt different and better. Uh, people, It seemed like people were friendlier. London had far fewer people in it, it seemed. <laughs> it seemed the population was much less. The rent was much cheaper. Yeah. Parts of Hackney and Brixton were much less gentrified than they are now. Um, and, you know, it was sort of pre social media as we know it so when you went to a gay bar it would be packed and you would find someone in there who you could get off with (laughs) and you know the music was always amazing um so again it's really great sort of thinking about those times it just it feels like a million years ago because we have social media and things have changed so much since then but really it's it's 20 years ago which is kind of mind-blowing
0: If you're a regular listener of the Weird Era Podcast, you know I love to ask the question... What is it about queer people and apocalypse? Uh, Along with the religious and biblical Armageddon stories that are mentioned throughout Rainbow Milk, Jesse's story starts on September 13th, 2001. And 9-11 is itself at once a horrible day, but is also an awakening for Jesse in that he watches tragic and shocking events unfold in real time with a gay couple who live together. Uh, An excitingly shocking concept he's equally witnessing for the first time. Why do you think queer people have this relationship to these kinds of of end-of-the-world narratives?
1: Uh, I think a sense of guilt um, Hmm. dictated to us by what is, you know, what claims to be a secular world, but one that is still kind of very much run on Christian ideals. You know, our sort of European... Euro-American, Euro-American, I should say, capitalist uh, kind of outlook is very much based on the nuclear family. It's based on cisgender, sort of heterosexual, heteronormative Christian ideals. Um, So whether we are, um, you know, subjected to a a Christian upbringing or other sort of uh, organized religion or not, um, as Westerners you know, we experience guilt as queer people. And I think that's sort of becoming less now, but certainly, you know, when I came out in 2003, that was also the year that uh, Section 28, a law that was brought in in the 1980s to suppress, um, I guess, education about homosexuality or the Mm -hmm. promotion of homosexual ideals um, in schools. It wasn't repealed until 2003 when I was 21 years old. So I'd grown up my whole life with that sense of suppression. Um, add, add that to the sort of more overt um, suppressive agent that was my religion. Um, and, you know, the fact of growing up in a sort of, um, uh, you know, a household from the Jamaican diaspora, Um you know my gayness my queerness was always sort of suppressed and it was something i always had you know felt that i had to be ashamed of and mm-hmm. felt that i had to be absolutely away from everyone whom i loved and grew up with um in order to sort of be able to live my own truth um you know that's uh, you know that guilt is is difficult to manage and difficult to sort of get over and gay shame i think still affects a lot of people you know even though they sort of seem to lead um open, honest lives. Um, Gay shame is still something, you know, once people forget that once a solution to a problem is found, they forget that the problem was there in the first place. But, you know, our lived experience doesn't forget that the problem was there. You know, I still sort of fear homophobic reprisals. You know, if I'm holding hands with someone walking down the street, for example. Um, so you know we're sort of entrenched in this sort of almost inescapable guilt. Um, and you know, if you're guilty, it means you're sort of on the wrong side of God, perhaps. Um, and certainly in terms of the way I was raised, if you're on the wrong side of God, then you don't inherit the earth. You don't live forever on a paradise earth. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. you die at Armageddon, um, you join the devil, you know? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think perhaps it's becoming less of an issue with um, the the new generation. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw a statistic the other day uh, from the UK saying that fewer than fifty uh, percent of young adults identify as heterosexual now. So, as <laughs> yes. queer people, we're now in the majority. <laughs> So hopefully future generations will feel less guilt than we do and sort of be able to live their lives free of this kind of, I don't know, underlying sense of doom.
0: Mm. And just kind of jumping or following up on that, rather, uh, do you think Jesse would have had an easier go if he was coming of age now? And I think that's a question I'm asking about queer generational divide more than anything.
1: I think so. Um I think it would have still been difficult because Jehovah's Witnesses just haven't sort of moved with the times like other um, denominations have. So, whilst in other de- denominations of Christianity, um, you know, the you know there are gay bishops, for example, um, heterose- heterosexual- homosexuality is allowed, gay men and women can marry in church, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I think that you know, the witnesses still sort of hold the man as the head of the household and so women are suppressed still. Mm. You know, women's rights don't mean anything in in that culture. Um, and, you know, homosexuality is completely anathema to them. Um, whereas other people from the LGBT plus uh, community, um, I don't know what their opinions are about trans issues, for example. Um, so... Um, I don't know, I think, you know, things have very much changed generally, you know, certainly in terms of trans visibility, um, in terms of, um, you know, the rights of queer people matching those of heterosexual people now in so many ways. Um, But I still think that, um, you know, Jesse being um, a working class, underprivileged, young, poor, queer Black man, would still find it very difficult to step away from what is still seen as the absolute norm.
0: Tell me a bit about the importance of including the first part of Rainbow Milk, uh, namely Norman's story.
1: Sure. Um, So when I started writing Rainbow Milk as a novel back towards the end of 2017, um, the Windrush scandal broke in the UK. And for listeners who aren't quite aware of the Windrush scandal, the generation of um, Black Caribbean, mostly Black Caribbean and South Asian immigrants to the UK um, between 1948 and 1962 were called the Windrush generation after the name of the famous ship that bought the sort of first shipment of 492, mostly men from the Caribbean um, to England on June 22nd, 1948, called SS Empire Windrush. Um, so these people were invited to come and live in the UK as workers in the NHS and on the London Underground and various other sort of British nationalised institutions uh, in the sort of post-war effort to to repair the country. Um, but were immediately faced with persecution Um, in terms of housing, in terms of payment, you know, overt racism from, you know, the white uh, general population here, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Many of them moved alone and left kids behind in the Caribbean and in South Asia, hoping that they'd sort of settle and then send for their children. Many of them weren't able to. So my grandparents, who are all members of the Windrush generation from Jamaica, uh, Sorry. None of them were able to send for their children, um, but some did. And those children often travelled alone or with a chaperone and, you know, were aged you know between eight and 12 years old, for example. Um, so landed in the UK, handed over their landing cards and joined their parents on their parents' passports. So the Windrush scandal broke because the Home Office destroyed these landing cards in 2010 and then started to ask these people uh, to prove that they'd been resident legally in the UK all of their whole life. well, certainly not their whole lives, but since they moved here. And of course, you know, you're not going to be able to produce a receipt from a shop in 1972 Uh, So, (laughs) I mean, it it sounds silly, but people were deported and died and, you know, they had their sort of benefits taken away. They um, weren't able to access uh, the NHS um, and uh, weren't able to work because, you know, without uh, a legitimate sort of means of proving your right to remain, you're an illegal immigrant. And people have been deported, et cetera, et cetera. So that scandal broke. And because my grandparents were part of that generation and left children, who had those children come over at that time, they would have been amongst the people who were asked to prove their uh, right of residence. Um, And certainly, you know, by this time, uh, both my grandparents, both my grandfathers had died. One of my grandmothers had two years left to live and the other grandmother was in a care home. Mm. So in terms of asking them about their lives at that time and when they first moved to England, my opportunities were running out. Um, And so I thought about my paternal grandfather who died when my dad was two years old. What little I knew of him, that he was uh, six foot something, he was very handsome, um, perfectly fit and healthy when he moved to the UK, but soon started to suffer from very serious migraine headaches and sight loss when he moved here to the point that he went blind, he couldn't work, and my grandmother sent him to live back in Jamaica so that she could stay here, work, and raise the children by herself. That's all I knew of him. So I did a lot of research into um, Jamaica in the 40s and 50s. And all of a sudden sort of came upon this character. And I'd done a bit of acting. So I was able to sort of access him through acting. I sort of improvised his, um, well, I sort of created a voice for him and created a physicality for him. Um, And just went home one day after researching at the British Library um, and just recorded myself sort of speaking in Jamaican Patois as him sort of talking about, um, you know, my hopes for my children's lives and sort of what I'd been through, what I'd suffered, um, and transcribed that, and that became the first draft of his story. But in terms of including it as uh, uh, in Rainbow Milk, um, I thought it would be a great way to show generational generational change or, mm. or lack of change between the generations, certainly in terms of... Um, how the majority, the white majority, let's say, uh, receives the black body and how it treats the black body Um, in terms of um, charting generational trauma, inherited trauma and all of these things. And certainly just giving Jesse a background into, um, into his identity, one that he wasn't aware of himself. You know, he would never know Norman. He would never even know his own father. He was raised by a white adoptive father. Um, and so it just really gives, uh, the reader a real, a real grounding into, um, into, I guess the blind spot in Jesse's life of his heritage. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, that's all I'll, I'll say on that for now. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh,
0: you make the decision in Rainbow Milk to write the dialogue phonetically. I think this enriches the dialogue so much in that you are immediately given access to several more background layers of a character than without, especially for UK readers who might be more informed about what any of the particular regional accents might mean. What does an accent and language say about class in the UK and about the class divide experienced by Jesse? Well, very similar
1: to how we talked before about uh the sex scenes. Um, you know, Jesse's experience, certainly when moving to London, for example, of hearing, you know, people uh, French nationals, for example, speaking English or Australians speaking English in a very, very different way to, to anything he's particularly heard before. Um I thought it was just a great way, in terms of um uh writing the dialogue phonetically, I thought it was a great way just to show Jesse's sort of sense of Newness and, um, again, the shelteredness of his experience, Um, you know, really sort of decoding and having to listen specifically and almost translating, even though it's English, still translating what they're saying in real time Mm -hmm. um, so that he can understand them. Um, And the same with Norman in uh, the West Midlands in the 1950s, you know, his next door neighbor being um, an elderly white man and they're sort of talking over the fence, And you've got uh, someone speaking with Jamaican patois dialect and then someone speaking in the black country dialect. And it's kind of, you know, I guess guess a lot of readers um, will be foreign to both of those things Mm -hmm. um, because the black country dialect is such a sort of small and specific one Mm -hmm. in the UK. Um, But, you know, when it comes to people from sort of upper middle classes... Um, I haven't sort of been phonetic about their accents, and that does sort of show a kind of um, a class distinction uh, between, um, I guess, how we treat uh, people who speak with regional accents in this country. And it also speaks to how regional accents are being diluted slowly but surely in this country. Um, there is a standard way of speaking now, whether you're Prince William or you're a cast member of The Only Way is Essex, it seems. Uh, (laughs) um, Both reference, uh, well, the latter reference, I'm not sure (laughs) uh, the the majority of your readers will quite get, but um, there's just like a a general draw that's almost mid-Atlantic as well. You know, social media has had such a huge effect on the way everyone in the West speaks English now because, And I think, you know, mainly African-American vernacular has had like a huge impact on the way everyone uh, in the West speaks. Yeah. Um, But yeah, certainly in terms of portraying Jesse's experience of um, just not knowing anything outside his own very small white working class dominated uh, environment, and then, sort of going out there into the world and sort of hearing things anew and sort of coming to sort of understand different forms of speaking and being, I mean he's constantly looking for the way to be, yeah the way to live he's constantly listening listening out for cues from people as to how he should move, how he should act um because the way he's um, developed as a person has always been dictated by people from the outside telling him how he should be and always having to conform to their ideals of who he should be as a heterosexual young man. On page
0: 192, uh, before eating Christmas dinner, Jesse prays aloud at Owen's request. The ensuing prayer, I think, is one of the standout moments of Rainbow Milk for me. Can you elaborate on and tell me a bit about what you were doing with this scene?
1: Well, I mean, in terms of the prayer itself, um, I'll, I'll start by saying that, you know, not a lot of people know who Jehovah's Witnesses really are and what they really believe, um, mm-hmm. what their daily lives are like. Um, it's a very sort of unknown kind of organization where anyone obviously can join, but, you know, you're almost sort of subjected to several levels of testing before you're sort of accepted within the community. Yeah. Um, so it was quite important for me to sort of install into Owen a sense of curiosity about uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses' practices. Um, hence, Owen asking Jesse to pray uh, for their dinner. But, you know, Jesse's been outside of the, of the organisation now for six months or more, um, and, or actually just over a year. Sorry,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and has come out as gay in that time, become a sex worker, and gone through sexual assault. Mm. and is kind of in a very dark place in life at this point. Um, So he hasn't prayed since leaving the organisation. And so being asked to pray, um, I guess sort of presents him the opportunity to show Owen um, how Jehovah's Witnesses would pray. But halfway through that prayer, once he's sort of said the usual, dear Heavenly Father, Jehovah God, thank you very much for the weather and the birds and the fish of the sea and the flying creatures, blah, blah, blah. Actually, what is Jesse really thankful for? You know, what sort of life has he been forced to lead? Um, and it's a quite sort of visceral sense of bitterness that sort of comes over Jesse. Jesse while his eyes are closed, while the steam of the hot dinner is sort of uh, condensing on his nose. Um, And, you know, I've read that passage out loud um, at a couple of events recently. Um, Mm -hmm. And I almost start crying every single time I read that out loud. Um, It's not a prayer that I've ever asked, but I absolutely believe him and absolutely remember we were talking earlier about sort of uh, physical memory. I yeah. absolutely remember how th- how it felt um, when I felt let down by God. And while I don't remember myself ever asking a prayer like that, mm-hmm. that is absolutely the prayer that I should have been asking at the age of sort of 22, 23. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just... It felt, you know, people have asked me in the past, you know, have did you find the writing experience cathartic? And usually I say no, I find, find it a joy. Um, but certainly that moment was probably mm. very cathartic for me um, because I just got to sort of basically have an argument with myself and my beliefs. Um, and I got to sort of overcome them and got to sort of show real appreciation for the life that I do have. And the ability to think for myself independent of this kind of um, domineering kind of didactic spiritual framework that I was subjected to for my whole childhood. And thank God for Sugar Babes, Joy Division, Weed, and (laughs) Destiny's Child, right? I mean, it does get a a little bit sort of um, snotty and, uh, yeah, cute. At the end of that prayer, I think um, but i'll tell you what my um i wasn 't even looking at the keyboard while I was typing that scene. I was just sort of you know mm-hmm. it was just pure sort of anger and um and defiance, and as opposed to um, sign off something so important as a prayer with you know bubblegum pop music references. <laughs> it's kind of audacious. Um, so, yeah, I kind of enjoyed doing that. I felt a real sense of satisfaction. But, you know, all joking aside, mm-hmm. Sugar Babes, Destiny's Child, and Joy Division helped me through all of this. Yeah. yeah you yeah. know, I cannot underestimate how much they helped me through. Like, the writings on the wall by Destiny's Child hmm um you know i was disfellowshipped in 1999 that album came out in 1999 i played that album on repeat yeah 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 that album was my salvation you know because when you're disfellowshipped from the community of jehovah's witnesses you're out you're you know you're sort of surgically removed yeah you can't speak to anybody they can't speak to you you're Mm. dead to them you know until you repent until they're satisfied that you're repentant yeah Um, And so, you know, for the first time I was extremely lonely and I didn't know how to make friends. I'd never had to sort of consciously make the effort to sort of get to know anybody because, you know, if you're in a congregation with people who who have the same beliefs as you, you're automatically family. Exactly. Um, And so I was an exile within my family home. I was studying at college. There were a couple of um, girls, witness girls, who I'd grown up with who were twin sisters. Mm Mm-hmm same age as me, they saw me in the college corridor, ducked into a classroom until I'd gone. And then I looked over my shoulder and I saw (laughs) them come out. And, you know, that was me sort of realising, like, you know, in no uncertain terms that I was being avoided. Yeah. That I'd done something so wrong in their eyes that they literally couldn't even walk Couldn't even be in in the presence of me. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So I put my earphones in and I, you know, my CD player that I carried around with me at that time <laughs> with my five or six CDs, all in their cases, like, you know, clicking around in my rucksack. <laughs> and I took out the writings on the wall or I took out, you know, One in a Million by Leo, or I took out Super Duper Fly by Missy Elliott or I took out Search of by Anyardee. And yeah. I just listened it away. You know, I keep thinking of... Um, Cranes in the Sky by Solange, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I tried to read it away. I tried to sex it away. I tried to, you mm-hmm. know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and certainly in this instance, it was music that helped me to, to get through that really, really tough time. You know, you're 17 years old. It's a really, really difficult time for you anyway. Yeah. Uh, and then this happens in the background. Um, so, you know, music was my salvation. Absolutely.
0: A thing that I loved so much about Rainbow Milk was that, and slight spoiler alert here, listeners, um, Jesse actually gets a happy ending. I do think a lot of the books that are critically successful these days are unfortunately... or unfortunately tend to be inherently depressing and most characters do not get the kind of ending that Jesse is awarded. Uh, Jesse's life has traumatic moments throughout of course but did you set out to write something with a happy ending rather than the alternative or is the ending purely a reflection of your own lived experience?
1: Uh, certainly not in terms of the last part of your question. Um... You know, I continue to go through ups and downs, but um, well, no, let let yeah, me yeah. take that all the way back. Um, you know, I <laughs> I have a lot to be thankful for and to be grateful for, and I've really survived. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, all of those things that I've been through, I, I've survived and I've come out of it scot free, healthy. You know, with great people in my life. Um, so yes, I did set out to. Show that despite all the things that he's been through, all the things that have been set up for him beyond his control, Jesse can overcome all of those things and sort of not just achieve happiness in the moment, but sort of have beyond the pathway, you know, be in control of his existence and his destiny. Um, it was very important for me to show that, you know, of course, I'm aware of the cliche of um, certainly queer stories sort of always ending badly in in fiction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and certainly wanted to, to buck that trend. Um, although that took a little bit of prompting from my publisher, my editor. Um, the original of Rainbow Milk ended with another spoiler alert, sorry, but Owen's car accident sort of
0: (laughs) three quarters of the way through the book.
1: That's where it was supposed to end originally. Uh, And she was like, "Uh -uh, no, let's, let's see a little bit more. And it's telling that, you know, my publisher uh, is a black queer woman herself. And so, you know, you know, whereas so many of the gatekeepers in the publishing industry aren't people who will have shared my experiences or know anything about my experiences, and perhaps wouldn't have encouraged me to do something different, um, Charmaine did, and I'm very, very glad that she did because it shows young people who, you know, regardless of what I said earlier on about you know the greater number having a better time now coming out and sort of living their lives in their own way. Um, There are still a lot of kids who struggle and who don't, you know, there are still people who are of age, who are my age and older, who are still living closeted lives, for example, you know, so it's really kind of responsible more than anything else to show someone, yes, coming from an environment that suppressed them and having to go through the worst in order to break free from that. But you don't necessarily have to die. You know, we're coming back to this idea that you were talking about earlier of, uh, of queerness and doom, queerness and the apocalypse, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, we're just sort of ingrained into believing that if we sort of divert from the sort of uh, received path of heterosexuality, that we sacrifice our lives. That's not true. That yeah. is not true. Live yeah. your life. Do what you want. Respect yourself. Be happy. And that's what I wanted to put across in Rainbow Milk.
0: What a good way to end this. And yeah, as a final note, I'm really looking forward to selling copies of Rainbow Milk to people who do need a happy ending right now. I, I think it's such a steamy, vulnerable and ultimately rewarding piece of literature. And I really do wish it as much success over here as it's had in the UK.
1: Thank you so much. I hope so, too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you, listeners. Uh, thank you, Paul, for coming on uh, on the Weird Era podcast. And uh, we'll hear from you next time. Bye, everyone.